Like all the best Irish stories, this one begins in a pub. The Algiers Inn sits in the small seaside village of Baltimore. Tucked into a corner of Roaring Water Bay in West Cork, Baltimore is known as a haven for sailors and for its fiddle fair. But this peaceful little village hides an unexpectedly dramatic history. And the Algiers Inn is the only hint you'll see that Baltimore was the scene of one of the most dramatic pirate raids that ever happened in Western Europe. I'd heard bits about it locally, stories of whole families taken away and sold as slaves in North Africa. But to be honest, it was hard to believe. It seemed like something out of Pirates of the Caribbean and not the history of a sleepy little village. I really wanted to find out more about this bit of swashbuckling Hollywood in rural Ireland. So first things first, I decided to call in on Kieran Walsh, the landlord of the Algiers Inn. You have a, a list of the names in your pub of the people who were taken. That's right, that's right. There is a list here. Uh, you see the top, it's got a title, The Sack of Baltimore, one Captain Matthew Rice, a Dutch renegade. They're not um, what you'd call Irish names, the names of the people taken. No, no, they seem to be uh, planted names anyway to me. Uh, the, you see the list of Baltimore people carried away by the Turk, a Turk with a knee, on the 20th of June 1631. Uh, you know, you've got the family name William Mould, uh, it says uh, to himself and a boy, whether that was a son or, or a servant. And then Owled Osborne, uh, to himself and maid. I wonder what happened to young Osborne. Uh, Alexander Pummery, you know, there's no local names. Uh, John Ryder, Robert Hunt, Abram Roberts, Corrant Cruffin, John Harris, Dermot Megary, Richard Mead, Richard Laurie, Steve, what's the name is this? Stephen Broderbrook, Old Honkin, I wonder what happened, Young Honkin, Evans, himself and the cook. This letter, hastily scribbled on a scrap of paper by the mayor of Baltimore hours after the pirates left, gives a sense of the utter shock and dismay caused by the raid. June 20th, 1631. Baltimore, this present Monday morning. Right worshipful sir, this is my letter to let you understand that this last night, a little before day, came two Turk men of war of about 300 tonnes and another of about 150, with a loose boat to set their men ashore, and they have carried away of our townspeople, men, women and children, 111, and two more slain. And it's interesting there that on the second column it says himself, wife and two children, but the wives or the children aren't named, it's just the householder. That's right, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, just the householder. Uh, like, for instance, Richard Mead, there's five people taking that house, himself, wife and three children. Um, and, uh, there's nine there, there's William nine. Gunter. William Gunter had a big family by the looks of things. Himself, wife, maid, and seven sons. Sons, S O N N E S. S O N N E S, yeah. And uh, Richard Chimer looked like a big family, five out of his, his wife and four children. Uh, the sum of all carried from Baltimore is 107. Looks like there were um, two people, looks like two were knocked off. <laughs> Timothy Curlew and John Davies were slain. And old Osborne, as we said, he was old. Old Osborne and Alice Heard were sent ashore again. Maybe they were infirm or old or invalid in some way. So it was quite a big haul. Yeah, pretty um, pretty big passenger manifest. And it <laughs> devastated Baltimore, didn't it? Did, it? it did, yeah. yeah. As I looked at the list in Kieran's pub, it began to sink in that the raid wasn't the swashbuckling pirate escapade that I first thought it was. These seemed like ordinary families, mostly women and children, 
One woman, Joanne Broadbrook, was even pregnant. I couldn't get these families out of my mind. I really wanted to know what kind of people they were and what they were doing in Baltimore. Just across the road, I met Bernie McCarthy. She and her husband bought and renovated Dunashade Castle, and during the renovations, she began to research the history of the village. Well, Baltimore was settled at that time by a new English colony. Um, it had been in uh, Gaelic hands up to then. The O'Driscolls were here for a number of centuries. But um, just after the Battle of Kinsale at about, in about uh, 1606, um, there was a new charter given to uh, Thomas Crook. He came from London and the king gave, gave him a charter of the town of Baltimore. He, he was known to be an aider and a better of pirates and he, there was a lot of contact between Thomas Crook and pirates al- along the coast here. So when you say the pirates along the coast here, was, was there a lot of piracy along yes, the was, southwest coast? There was a lot of piracy going on at that time, yes. English and Danish boats came in, but also a lot of Irish boats. They traded, um, it, uh, it was part of the 17th century, 16th century activity on the seas. So these villagers were not quite the innocent fisher folk I had in mind. They were certainly living on the edge of the law when it came to their dealings with pirates. That said, their day-to-day lives consisted of fishing and fish processing. Trading with the odd smuggler didn't prepare them for the dramatic arrival of North African corsairs. And how long had they been in Baltimore, these people, when this raid happened? Well, the town started about 1606, and the raid was 1631. So So they hadn't just arrived the previous week, they were well established? they they were established, yes. They were here for a number of years. With children born in Ireland? Yes, yes, exactly. And they say that most of the people who were planted in Ireland at that time were either looking for um, religious freedom or obviously a new start in the sort of fishing industry or something like that. People who wanted to start again, start afresh, they maybe were escaping the piracy laws, maybe searching for religious freedom. The following day, I met Des Eakin down at the cove where the pirates landed that June morning. We're looking down on an area called the Cove, uh, which is quite close to Baltimore, maybe about half a mile away. It's a little sort of semicircular uh, bay, very, very pretty in, in the morning light here. Um, they anchored their ship around the corner, uh, out of sight, around the headland, in a place called the Eastern Hole. And uh, they left their ships there. They took out their own ships' boats and some stolen uh, fishing boats that they'd taken from Waterford fishermen earlier in, in the day. And uh, they rowed uh, silently around the headland we see in front of us and round into the sheltered cove. And they, uh, this would have been dense with fishing boats because these were sort of uh, ordinary fisher folk who come here to fish for pilchards. And they worked their way through that maze of uh, fishing boats and landed on the shingle beach. And it's just impossible to imagine that um, on June the 20th, in the early hours of the morning, in uh, June 20th, 1631, this was the epicentre of the greatest ever pirate slave raid in Ireland or Britain. They went to sleep on Sunday night, expecting to get up early on Monday morning to have an ordinary day's work ahead of them. They'd probably have been very tired. Um, the fact that they didn't put out any lookout of any sort, uh, they were totally taken by surprise. Nobody saw the, the pirates coming. Uh, if they had, some of them could have escaped.
You had two pirate ships. Uh, they were quite uh, serious uh, ships. There was uh, one was three hundred tons, the other was a hundred tons. Uh, so the, uh, they were bristling with a total of thirty-six guns. So they were, you know, quite serious firepower. They had two hundred and eighty. Uh, fighting men on board altogether, and that's quite a sizable force. Um, 230 of them went abo- went ashore. What they did first of all, they assembled on the beach, and they had crowbars with them. They brought crowbars, and they also brought firebrands, uh, torches with uh, tarred ends. And they lit those, and then they fanned out. But if you can imagine what it was like, there was about 26 huts uh, arranged in three concentric arcs uh, around the bay. And these would have been quite simple huts. They would have been uh, thatch uh, and wattle, that sort of thing. They had stone chimneys, um, so, so they were quite sophisticated for, for their day. They, they were very vulnerable to fire with the thatch roofs, especially in midsummer. So um, they found out there was about uh, nine soldiers for every house, so the villagers didn't stand a chance. You know, they, they immediately pushed the firebrands into the thatched roofs, and the flames leapt up into the night. And then the villagers emerged, coughing and their eyes streaming into the to face these uh, people who must have looked more like demons than men. Who had the the janissary troops? They would have made an amazing sight because these were warriors with swirling cloaks. They had sort of these special sort of cowled cloaks that they wore. Uh, they had uh, waistcoats. They had uh, uh, plumed turbans. Um, iron-shod shoes. They would have made such an exotic sight and on top of that the Janissaries always psyched their victims out with noise. They made an unholy racket. Uh, They clapped their hands, they yelled, uh, they banged the side of boats, they they created an an awful cacophony of noise. And you would have had the pirates, they were European renegados, most of them that's renegades. They would have been, um, so they would have looked conventionally uh, European but they would have countered this. Uh, they used the technique of, uh, of shouting the most uh, vile blasphemies and obscenities they could think of. So it was really shock and awe in the 1600s. You know. One of the most surprising things about this raid is that the captain of the Algerian pirate ship was a white, Christian-born Dutchman called Morat Rees. He was a hugely successful slave trader, an opportunistic businessman with a pretty grim trade. He built an enormous fortune on the back of his slave raiding expeditions and lived in palatial luxury in North Africa. The main goal of the raid was to get as many live, healthy people on board the ship. This was about money, and a dead slave was dead money. But at the same time, these pirates would let nothing stand in their way. They tried not to kill people, but there were two men who put up a heroic defence, uh, John Davis and Timothy Curlew. And they tried to resist, and it was absolutely hopeless because the odds were just overwhelming, and they were just hacked, hacked down on the spot, and uh, they were killed. And the rest were just herded down to the beach and put on board the, the, the boats and taken back out to the ship. And did they take everybody? They took everyone from the cove. I don't think anybody escaped from there. So they took everybody in the village. Did that include the kids, the grandparents, the men and the women? It covered the whole age spectrum. I mean, you can't imagine a greater uh, range. There was one witness said that they took children as young as uh, from babies in the cradle, even even down to those in the cradle, was the quote, right up to elderly folk. Uh, but at the end, uh, as they were about to sail away, they sent two elderly folk back again, because they pres- presumably because they thought they weren't worth taking, they wouldn't survive the journey. And were babies but, worth taking? Yes, because there was a great futures market in Algiers. They would take young children and uh, estimate what 
they were likely to be worth in maybe 15 years' time, and uh, they would speculate on the future. You got syndicates who would uh, who would invest in these uh, children. They were kept uh, as sort of domestic labourers in the meantime, and then when they became teenagers, uh, presumably they would be looked at as potential concubines. God, it's like buying a yearling or something. Yes, very much exactly like that. It was like um, uh, like a syndicate today might invest in a in, in, in a future resource. <laughs> They loaded all the, uh, the captives onto the, onto the boats and they rowed them back out onto the ship again around the headland. And we can only imagine what they must have uh, been thinking, the, uh, the captives, because uh, you could just imagine the children crying and uh, their mothers keening with terror. Fifty of the captives, that's nearly half of them, were children. That's 38 little girls and 12 boys. Another 34 were women. So the vast majority, sort of nearly four out of five of them, were women and children. Uh, there were 23 men. Uh, now, many of them, apart from the children, many of them would have been young parents. So they were a very young population and they had you know, their lives ahead of them. The women were very much sought after, particularly pale-skinned, Celtic-skinned women. Uh, they were regarded as exotically beautiful in the Barbary states, so they always fetched uh, a high amount of money. Um, so that's the way they looked at it. So we're going up here to the to the beacon so we can have a look back at the bay right. and see what the pirates mm-hmm. could see as they headed out. What a stunning view it is. See over towards Shirkin Island, Roaring Water Bay. It's really magnificent. I wonder were the pirates thinking about the scenery or were they more focused on the financial aspect? I think aspect? they were probably thinking more about how much money they were going to make because um, everybody on board would have had a, a share of the proceeds. To some extent, it was all very carefully regulated according to um, the, um, the, the, role that, the role that they played. I mean, even the janissary troops would have had... Uh, wow. wow, we've just come to the edge of a cliff and we're looking down. And it's absolutely magnificent. You can see the waves crashing in. And, the, and it was just around this headland that the pirates um, anchored their two ships. And then they uh, sailed their rowing boats around this. Very treacherous, um, can be very hard to negotiate if you don't know it. But they had a pilot with them, an experienced pilot. But it's amazing because we're up here and we can see for miles. Mm. But what I'm thinking is that as they went around this headland, that would have been the last that these villagers saw of Baltimore. That's right. That was their last. Uh, it was almost uh, when they. That would be the last they've seen of their home, and also when they got onto the um, ship. I can just imagine that the, the the windlass bringing up the anchor, and them thinking that this is the last. That this is almost the severing of the umbilical cord with home, because most of them would know they'd never see their home their homes again. Very sad. The journey to Algiers was the first of many harsh experiences for the Baltimore captives. The women and children were kept separately from the men. The conditions were insanitary for everyone, but the men had a particularly rough time stowed in the anchor hold where it was wet and horrendously cramped. While the pirates were invested in keeping their slaves alive, conditions aboard pirate ships were notoriously grim for captives. An Irishman, James Leander Cathcart, who was taken by Algerian pirates in the 18th century, described his voyage as follows. It is impossible to describe the horror of our situation. Forty-two men shut up in a dark room in the hold of a Barbary cruiser, filthy in extreme, destitute of every nourishment and nearly suffocated. John Foss was an Englishman who had a similar experience. 
we were obliged to creep on our hands and knees and stow ourselves upon the sails. Lice, bugs and fleas of such quantity that it seemed we were completely covered. The worst fate imaginable was to be sold into slavery on the Barbary coast of North Africa because they'd heard the horror stories from sermons where fundraising efforts were being carried out to, to, to free slaves and they'd read them in propaganda pamphlets, stories of hideous, hideously inventive tortures and scientific, scientifically concentrated beatings, stories of living deaths at the galleors and malicious and random cruelties and horrific sexual assaults and all these images had been implanted in their heads for years. So when and they were taken they thought they were going to hell? Yeah, they, they'd had bad dreams about this all their lives and now in an almost literal sense they were living through their worst nightmares they thought they were going to hell, yeah, then it's something worse. I wanted to find someone who could tell me what it would have been like for the Baltimore captives arriving in Algiers in the summer of 1631. As luck would have it, Dr Vivian Ibrahim is an Islamic historian based down the road from Baltimore at University College Cork. These people were taken from their beds in the middle of the night, thrown onto a pirate ship and brought to North Africa. What would have happened when the boat pulled into the port in Algiers? Um, They would have been disembarked um, naked, um, shackled most probably. Um, Shackles could have been around their legs, it could have been around their necks, most likely around their legs though. Um, They could have weighed up to sort of 50 kilograms and they would have been sent into quarantine. Um, It's highly likely that they would have spent a few months there. Um, uh, Bubonic plague um, and cholera were widespread in Algiers and so... um, they would have uh, stayed in quarantine until they knew that they didn't have it and then um, after that they'd be put into the slave market um, and sold at auction. Father Pierre Dan was a French missionary priest, part of the Trinitarian order that was devoted to redeeming Christian captives on the Barbary coast. Father Pierre Dan was there in the slave market the day the Baltimore folk were auctioned. It was a pitiful sight to see them put up for sale. For then, the wives were taken from husbands and children from their fathers. Then, I declare, they sold on the one hand the husbands, on the other the wives whipping their daughters from their arms, leaving them no hope of ever seeing each other again. There was not a single Christian who was not weeping and who was not full of sadness at the sight of so many good women abandoned to the brutality of these barbarians. They would have arrived in Algiers in one of the hottest months um, of the city. Um, It would have been, you know, scorching hot, very humid. Um, Yeah, it would have been a big shock to them. They would have been sold on the basis of their fitness, um, how young they were, and also, you know, their look, whether they looked like they were going to be healthy and hold up for a long time. Um, on that basis, you would have ended up on um, either um, as a labourer um, or if you had some sc- kind of skill of some sort, you would have worked as a skilled work- worker or you could have ended up in a house. So this was sort of a bit potluck, um, but it also depended on the skills that you could provide. Alternatively, if you looked like you, know, you were barely and strong, you'd probably end up working in the quarry and breaking up rocks. The worst thing that could have happened to some of these people, it sounds to me like ending up on the galleys was, was pretty awful. There were uh, up to 240 men at a time on the galleys. Um, conditions were harsh. Um, but again, this was 
the same across a lot of most of Europe. Um, water was particularly the biggest issue. So if you could get water and could be fed, um, you would have worked long hours, up to 12 hours, a shift at a time, um, with only one hour rest in between. And it's highly unlikely that you would have, you know, gone into another room and lay down to have a sleep. Um, you would have slept where you would have been rowing um, and wouldn't have had room to sort of stretch your legs. It, it just sounds like the most awful life. Yes and no. I mean, yes, it was awful. Of course it was awful, but it wasn't exceptional. I think that's what we keep, need to keep coming back to. It It wasn't special. You know, the Spanish were doing exactly the same thing. The French were and the British were. Um, that's not to say that it was right. It, it's just to say that um, we're more inclined to think that um, life on the Barbary Coast would have been very barbaric. Um, it was pretty barbaric being a galleyman anywhere. He that's condemned to the oar hath first his face, eyebrows and head close-shaven, for no more disgrace cannot be tied a Christian. Then, being stripped to the girdle, as when rogues are to be whipped, chained they are to the seats, where they sit rowing, five in a row, a Turk going on a large plank between them. And though their eyes are ready to start out with pulling, he cries, Work! Work, you Christian curs! though none needs one blow for loitering. Yet his bare back bleeds and rises up in bunches. For some of the Baltimore captives, the sound of the galley drum would beat the rhythm to the rest of their lives. Many of the others would have ended up living in special slave housing known as banyos. The banyos were ghetto-like areas where hundreds of slaves lived together. Some slaves even managed to set up their own businesses within the banyos, trading with each other and even providing services to the citizens of Algiers. Some enterprising slaves made quite a good living selling alcohol, which was prohibited elsewhere in Algiers. The banyos were a melting pot with every nationality under the sun. A special universal language, the lingua franca, was used to communicate. One of the biggest surprises for me about this story was the sense I was getting that slavery was almost normal at the time. It's not something you hear about very often, and yet here it seems was this carefully organised system of abduction, sale and exploitation of white Europeans. As I read around trying to find out more about the white slave trade, I discovered that the Mediterranean coast was so devastated by North African pirates during this period that the coastal population actually began to move inland. The Baltimore slaves were actually a drop in a very big ocean. Adrian Tinniswood is a literary historian from Bath in the UK and he's made a special study of the slave-trading pirates of North Africa. Something like a million... Um, Europeans were sold into slavery on the Barbary Coast in the 17th century. It was, it, it was common. It was common practice. And just as many North Africans were sold into slavery in, in Europe, it was a huge trade in human flesh. There's some evidence to suggest that wealthier European slaves were systematically abused when they were first captured, just to make... Then they were allowed to write home for ransom, and it was just to make sure that they, they 
they had a they had a sort of a sub story to tell, if you like. But by and large, slaves weren't treated very badly. They weren't um, as long as they sort of kept to the rules. If they struck a master or if they they tried to escape, then they had brutal punishments. Um, if you struck your master in Algiers as European slave, as any kind of slave, you might, for example, have your legs broken with a sledgehammer. Um, you know, there were these there was there were brutal punishments for transgression, but they were for transgression. You know, you, you actually if you kept to the code, you had, didn't have a terribly bad time of things. As Except you're a slave. Well, I was going to say as long as you didn't mind not being free yeah, yeah, or just able that to one do... small thing. Yeah, that's right. So there's um, we have an example here from a, a young man who was captured in 1625 and who was um, writing home to his parents, to his father, begging him to arrange a ransom to, to get this, this young lad out. And he, he closes a long letter, actually. He closes it by saying, Therefore I humbly desire you on my bended, bended knees, knees and with, with sighs from the bottom, bottom of my, of my heart, heart to commiserate my poor distressed estate and seek some means for my delivery out of this miserable slavery... For here there are some 1,500 Englishmen in as bad a case as myself, although some better used, for they misuse none but such are able to pay their ransom. And, dear Father, I humbly beseech you, for Christ Jesus' sake, to take some course for my deliverance, for if neither the king take no course nor my ransom come, I am out of all hope ever to behold my country again. Desperation. Desperation, yeah. Why wasn't there more pressure? Was the king not interested in trying to get these people back? The king was interested in, in trying to get them back, but that you've got to say you know, that although the, the Baltimore raid was the biggest single kidnapping of um, uh, British Irish subjects, it was going on all the time. I mean, you couldn't move in Westminster for, for the wives of sailors because the vast majority of slaves were sailors. There were people taken on merchant ships in the Mediterranean or, or fishermen. I mean, Algerian corsairs used to hang around off the southwest coast of England, off Cornwall, waiting for fishing fleets to come back. And they would, so there are thousands, thousands of English men, by and large, they're fishermen uh, and sailors, who are um, languishing in Algiers. And their wives, their mothers, their sisters are constantly petitioning the Crown, petitioning the government, saying, you've got to do something. And the government tries. It, it, it occasionally it will send an expedition, which is never very successful. Sometimes it will send money and try and ransom a few slaves. So all these people were taken from Baltimore... In, in this broader context of a lot of slaves being taken, but do we know anything about the Baltimore captives and any of their families trying to get them back? Was there any record in history of anybody in Baltimore saying, hang on a minute, bring me back my, my family, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle? There's one man, William Gunter. William Gunter was away that night and he came back to his home to find his home gone, to find his family gone, his wife gone, to find his seven children, his seven boys gone. And his life had just vanished, and he just didn't know what to do. And he, 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 um, he tried to get the sort of mayor involved, he tried to get the Earl of Cork involved, he eventually went over to London and tried to get the king involved and said, you know, please help me. He's, he's, he's scouring the, the sort of offices of Whitehall and, and Dublin and anywhere, for anyone to just help him. There is one William Gunter who bears the greatest in that loss, having his wife and seven sons carried away by the Turks. 
He will not be dissuaded from repairing thither, that's to London, to solicit your lordships for applying some remedies to his grief and great misfortune. We therefore humbly recommend him to your lordship's favour as a special object of pity and compassion. Wow, will not be dissuaded. So they were trying to say, look, there's no point, don't bother going. Clearly they were, I think. I mean, that's, that comes through, doesn't it? There's that idea that, that you know, it's not going to do any good. But William Gunter will not be dissuaded. He, he's desperate for news of his family. Wow, the poor man. I mean, that is just catastrophic, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, being taken is one thing. And, and we, we tend to sort of focus, naturally, you focus on the slaves. But, of course, the people who are left behind just had their lives ruined. You know, what, what do you do? Your wife and seven children have been kidnapped, basically. What do you do? But there's no happy ending to the story. We don't hear of him selling his house, putting up the money and getting even some of his family back. No, as far as we know, he never saw his wife and seven boys again, ever. While sailors were often taken at sea, one of the most striking things about the Baltimore slave raid was the number of women and children captured. The fates awaiting them were very different. Um, according to Islamic uh, law, um, children below a certain age would have been kept with their mothers. Um, later on, they may have been sold separately as slaves and worked in households. Um, alternatively, they um, could have been raised as Muslims, um, taken in and just raised as one of, the, you know, one of the household. If the child looked like he was sturdy and was going to grow up to be strong, he could have been taken in um, and trained and maybe become part of the genisri later on. And to go back to our Baltimore captives, a large portion of whom were children, is there a reasonable possibility that some of these kids, particularly some of these little boys, might have ended up in the ruling elite of Algiers? It's very likely, um, especially if they were not so young, so in sort of 12, 13, 14 years old, so not quite men yet um, and not children, not needing their mothers. Um, It's quite likely that they ended up, first of all, being sold off as slaves um, and sort of seeing their strength, maybe later on becoming Janissaries. It's a remarkable twist of fate that the very Janissary warriors who raided Baltimore and aided the pirates in their slave-capturing expeditions around Europe were recruited from Christian-born children. Even more remarkably, this meant that the male children taken at Baltimore were prime candidates for becoming part of this elite fighting force that terrorised Christian Europe. I mean, you couldn't be part of the Janissary unless you converted, and forced conversion was not allowed. Um, However, conversion was a very sort of lax process, especially for the Janissaries. So you just had to announce that you were converting to Islam. You um, said the main words. Uh, There's something called the Shahada, which basically is a declaration. And the declaration is um, that there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And so once you've declared that, that's pretty much it. You're a Muslim. a benefit of being actually a child at the time because you're highly likely to integrate yourself much better into society in Algiers in the 17th century. Number one, you, you've got more opportunities in front of you. Um, you're more desirable as a slave. It's highly unlikely that you would have been forced to do hard labour. Um, and so your life, the quality of your life may have been much, much better the younger you were as opposed to the older you were. 
and you would have integrated yourself. So you may have quickly learned the language, you may have quickly, you know, become accustomed um, to day-to-day life. You may have converted more easily, more readily um, than, than someone who was older. One woman was very heavily pregnant when she went. It's highly likely that, she, you know, when she had the baby, um, she could have been sold, sold into a family as a slave, and the child actually could have been raised by the family, and she would have worked um, in the family. The child would have eventually have become part of the household. One of the enduring images of the Orient for the Western mind is the mysterious and illicit harem. When he is prepared for a fresh mate, he gives notice to the harem stewardess of his purpose, who immediately bestirs herself like a crafty board and chooseth out such as she judgeth to be most amiable and fairest of all. And having placed them in good order in a room, in two ranks, like so many pictures, half on one side, half on the other, she forthwith brings in the king, who, walking four or five times in the midst of them, and having viewed them well, taketh good notice within himself of her that he best liketh, but says nothing. Only as he goeth out again, he throweth a handkerchief into that virgin's hand, by which token she knoweth that she is to lie with him that night. But what were the likely outcomes for Christian women sold as slaves in Algiers during the period that the Baltimore residents were auctioned? Um, Contrary to popular belief, um, women would have been treated quite well. Um, um, When they went to auction, um, the prettier women went first. So the prettier you were, um, the more, the higher the price, you know, your slave cost would have been. Um, Prettier women would have often been sold um, as wives, uh, to uh, local businessmen, um, both Muslim and Christian, and al- also Jew. Um, the women who weren't so beautiful, shall we say, um, were often put into harems. A harem would have been um, a- an area of the house that would have been sort of um, cordoned off with many m- women in it. They would have been concubine women, um, kept um, in pretty decent conditions. Um, Actually, the reality is that they would have died of boredom more than anything else. You know, their their daily lives consisted of very little. They would have been overeating a lot of the time, actually, because uh, rounder, fuller-figured women were actually preferred. So a lot of the time they were given uh, bread soaked in syrup and um, told to eat that. So a lot of the women, if they ended up in a harem, um, would have gained a lot of weight very, very quickly. Um, to be considered to be more beautiful. So it wasn't a brothel by any means. Um, It was uh, a section of the house um, where the master's children would have gone in and out constantly. So this was sort of um, a very respectable area. Yes, there may have been lots of women, but they were all considered um, and treated in a very uh, well-mannered way. If you ended up in the harem, it was highly unlikely that you would have been a sexual partner or, or very often a sexual partner. If you were good enough or beautiful enough in order to be a sexual partner in the first place, you were more likely to be a wife to um, the master. So he would have bought um, the more beautiful women and made them wives. In Islam, men are are able to marry up to four women um, at a time. And so he would have had um, up to four wives um, and maybe a harem along the, the side, but... 
sometimes he would have had one wife in a harem of perhaps lesser women um, who would have been the concubines. You're giving us this image of a harem in Algeria in, in the 1630s. How likely is it that some of these Baltimore residents ended up in harems? Um, it's quite likely. Uh, the more beautiful ones would have been wives. The less beautiful ones may have ended up in harems. Most likely, however, um, they would have ended up being just slaves in households. Um, Christian women, for some bizarre reason, were considered to be better um, better at housekeeping. And so a lot of them would have just worked in houses and sold as slaves to work in houses. Neither uh, a, a wife or a, a member of the harem. So there's a distinction between being in the harem and being a member of the household working staff? Oh, absolutely. Being in the harem was being of notable position you know you got fat and you got and you had fun and you did very little and you had slaves actually serving on you so being part of the harem was like being sort of a girlfriend on the side Thirteen years after the arrival of the Baltimore villagers in Algiers the impossible happened The English Parliament decided to send a merchant Edmund Cason with a ship full of money and goods to buy back the king's subjects who were enslaved in Algiers. Extensive records were taken and 264 slaves were bought from their owners and put on a ship back to England. Could it be that any of the Baltimore captives were finally heading home? There's one tantalising reference to a woman called Joan Broadbrook or Bradbrook and she is the wife of Stephen Broadbrook, who and she was one of the women who were taken um, in the Baltimore raid. Um, the other Baltimore captives just don't, because Cason made a lot of lists. He made lists of, of names, lists of the lists of the lost, if you like. And the Joan is the only Baltimore captive to appear on those lists. What happens to the others? We don't know. Uh, it just so happens that Joan is a slave in the right place at the right time with the right owner. She could so easily have not been there and never gone home, like the other 106 Baltimore captives. What often happened was that slaves could have became assimilated into Algerian or Tunisian society. You know, some of them would have converted. Um, they would have turned Turk in the, the, the phrase of the day. Um, they may have taken sort of um, uh, Islamic names. They may have settled down, you know, and started families. Joan Broadbrook is the only person named on the list of Baltimore captives that we know left Algiers. And don't forget that it was Joan Broadbrook who was listed as great with child at the time of the raid. There's no mention of that child or her other two children. They, along with the other Baltimore captives, were left behind. And so on that June morning in 1631, a link was forged forever between Baltimore and the Barbary Coast. Uh, my name is Kieran Cotter and I own a grocery shop in the village of Baltimore. Well, a couple of years ago, this uh, gentleman arrived and uh, hadn't very much English and he bought the book and I, you know, it was a quiet time and I just asked him what his interest was and he told me he was Algerian and he had heard the story about this and he wanted to buy the book and off he went, he wanted to check it out. But this particular gentleman, he was unusual in one sense, in that uh, you think of Algerians as being people with darkish skin, brown eyes and dark hair. This particular fella 
was he was fair, fair-skinned, uh, blue-eyed, and I said to him uh, that he didn't look Algerian. And then he told me that about 10% of the population in Algeria actually have uh, fair-skinned, blue-eyed. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.